Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca St. James. Today, we're continuing with part two of our conversation with Dr. David McCarty. Dr. McCarty is a board-certified specialist in sleep medicine and a pioneer in the practice of patient-centered care for those who suffer from sleep disorders. An award-winning educator, he is passionate about empowering individuals with knowledge that restores confidence and personal agency as each patient navigates the landscape of disease and wellness within an increasingly fragmented healthcare system. He is also the co-creator of Empowered Sleep Apnea, an innovative cross-platform educational project combining storytelling, cartooning, scientific rigor, and quite a bit of fun, all in the name of helping individuals navigate the fascinating but complex disorder known as sleep apnea. Launched in 2023, the project comprises a website, a book, a blog, and a podcast. The Children's Airway First Foundation is proud to partner with Dr. McCarty and Empowered Sleep Apnea in an effort to help create more information, education, and understanding around the subject of airway and sleep apnea. You can find out more about Dr. McCarty at empoweredsleepapnea.com. And now, let's jump into part two of our discussion with Dr. David McCarty. And so when you're talking to a child, because I, I, I just don't see that you could go into, like every parent, my, my children are exceptional, so you could have had the conversation. <laughs> Where all no, of the children are above average. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I just don't think any child, if you walked in and said, how are you sleeping? You can't have that conversation with them. They just, no, no, they're you, just it's a very different world. So how do you, you know, how do you approach this with children? I mean, it's a very, it's got, it's got to be done by, by surrogate and you have to be, you know, the caregiver has to be observant and has to be kind of um, the advocate for the child. And, you know, um, Mm -hmm. parents will be able to give you their sense of their child's sleep satisfaction by how lousy they feel. You know, Mm. if the kid is not sleeping well, it's usually the parents who suffer. And I've heard that story, um, many, many times, you know, so uh, parents can usually give you a, a pretty good appraisal of what's wrong with the sleeping experience and what's wrong with the waking experience. They can do some sleuth work to investigate the question of whether snoring is present and how bad it is. And, um, you know, there are now the, the, the wearable technologies and the, and the, you know, bedside uh, technologies that are available to consumers are, you know, it's just over the top. So you can get data. Right. And the, the question is how did uh, unpack this data in a sensible way so that you can present it to your providers. So the, the structure that I just talked about, five reasons to treat, you can certainly apply that structure to unwinding a child's case of sleep apnea too. You know, um, in many cases, the risk part of this discussion is more nebulous. You know, sleep apnea in kids, with exceptions, we still have heavy children that have rip-roaring, bad, bad, obstructive sleep apnea, yeah. and I worry about heart failure. Yeah. Okay. But for the most part, we're talking about the other four reasons to treat and the risk to the child is much more nebulous. It's kind of, is this going to make the child develop in a different way? You know, because they're breathing with their mouth open all night, is their jaw going to be underdeveloped? You know, are they going to be back in school and have limited potential because they're so tired all the time? Those are the risks we're talking about for kids, you know? Um, Uh, So, you know, you can tailor the discussion differently, but you could say, um, for example, well, 
the first step of the five re- reasons monument is risk. I don't think this is the kind of sleep apnea that's going to give you a stroke, but you know, let's talk about the other four reasons. And then we can kind of help people understand that there's still a, reasons to think about this very critically. And that means we're going to take it apart with the many moving parts and choose the right treatment for this individual, not just say, well, here's what your insurance covers. Boom. Here's your CPAP yep. machine. You know what I mean? That's, or, or that's, hey, let's pull teeth and slap on some retractive braces because that's what it covers. Let's not go yeah, there. So sure. let's, yeah, let's, just, let's take just a addressing- step back at that discussion. That's that's the other th- thing that that is hard for a lot of providers to kind of talk about these days is that many times these kids with crowded airways present with malocclusion, you know, which means that their teeth are wonky and kind of crooked and weird looking. And when that happens, if you go to a, an orthodontist that isn't thinking about the airway, the standard of care might be to pull out some teeth to make room and pull those teeth backwards. And that has yeah. the effect of making the oral vault smaller. There's no question about it. The big sort of consternation and debate is, you know, the orthodontists that practice that way are, are feeling kind of defensive. You know, they don't want to be accused of causing problems, but yet here we are. We're getting the, the message yeah. that this, this phenotype of a smaller mouth is not really that good. And this orthodontist is sort of moving people in that direction. So we got to think about these things critically with our children and think about the airway when we're thinking about this, you know, wonky teeth issue too. For sure. And this, and I, I swear, I say this every episode. So this will be the point of this one that I say it for parents and providers, both to please hear the guilt. We got to let it go. Cause you don't know what you don't know. Y'all were taught what, what we thought was right. Parents mm-hmm. were doing what we thought was right here's the new evidence. It's okay. You know, yes. deep this breath, is, this is an evolving discussion. I totally agree. This is yeah. nobody's fault. This is nobody's no. fault. This is the no. way science develops is we're getting, you know, a, a new signal um, that much of what we see as malocclusion is probably developmental rather than genetic. And that means it's, mm-hmm. it has to do with the way we eat and chew and swallow from birth. And it's just different than it yeah. was in pre-industrial society. We're eating a lot easier to chew foods. We're bottle fed. Mm-hmm. And so that just makes the face develop differently, you know? And and that's yeah. a staggering reality to deal with that, you know, some of this that is affecting the label of sleep apnea is a skeletal developmental problem, which is probably going to require a different set of solutions for people. You know, this is the trajectory mm-hmm. of, of what I call in my, in my work, the sort of the outlaw, these are the folks who are outside sort of Western medical traditions who are pioneering this subject known as uh, epigenetic orthodontia. And epigenetic mm-hmm. refers to the, the elements that define uh, and, and help with development that have nothing to do with your genome, it has to do with, you know, pressures from without. So the, or within, so the way the tongue is working, the way our teeth come together when we chew, um, the way we swallow, whether it's a pursed lip swallow or whether it's a normal swallow, all of these things can affect the shape of our face. And once yeah. that, once that sort of concept hits home, it unlocks a, a completely different way of thinking about this. This is, this yes, is not does. a single issue problem anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, it, it turns yeah. out that many of the people who who kind of fit into that narrower face, smaller jaw phenotype. They're usually thinner than the typical Pickwickian syndrome, heavy snoring, sleepy person. And they usually present with these more autonomic um, uh, uh, 
imbalance towards sympathetic stimulation. So they, they're jumpy and they're, they're irritable and they can't sleep. Completely different phenotype. That type of person self-selects against going to a Western medical provider, right? Mm. Because they have an intuition that they're going to be offered a CPAP machine or they've heard from someone else that that's what's going to happen. So they self-select and they don't go. And this way they start going towards these pioneers in another sort of silo of Mm. thought. And suddenly we've got two different realities that are defining their reality with the same term. How confusing is that Mm -hmm. for for patients? They've got two different cultures. They've got two different ways of thinking about it and talking about it. And the people who get caught in the middle are are feeling the tension there because the the providers in Western medical don't understand what the outlaws are doing. And the outlaws are kind of unhappy with the fact that many of the folks in Western medical have been left behind. So now we've got two different professional organizations that can't talk to each other anymore. And that's a terrifying place for the patient. That's, to be yeah. You know? So again, if that's and, you out there for the, the providers. Audience, for the providers too. Yeah. Cause the, yeah. you know, it, it's sort of the human nature is to adopt a defensive stance on how you practice. And then you can't really hear anybody anymore. So, you know, to, to providers and patients who are kind of feeling like that, maybe where they are, this is the purpose of the blue book is that it really helps kind of unify the conversation in a way that deconstructs this for the patient. It's not really railroading someone towards a specific treatment. It's sort of understanding how it all fits together, you know? Right, right. And I'm I'm also going to put links to two previous podcasts with Dr. Becky Andrews and Stephen Hall. They are two of these pioneering outlaws. And I think it's important for parents, if they haven't heard it yet, to hear it, you know, in conjunction with this. And I mean, if you're up for it, it, it makes sense to me to kind of tackle the five finger approach at this point, because sure. Sure. Yeah. The, you go through the risks and you talk about it and you know, now where do we go? Well, the five finger approach is another complexity deconstruction tool. This one okay. uh, I actually uh, came up with when I was still on faculty with the division of sleep medicine at LSU health sciences center in Shreveport. And um, I'll, I'll give you a brief backstory for why this tool was so necessary or it was early in my uh, tenure as an attending there and i had gone Mm -hmm. in to see a patient who had several you know notes annual notes kind of a soap note is how they did it back then subjective objective you know assessment and plan um and uh each one was the same you know subjective patient presents for um follow-up of obstructive sleep apnea ahi six objective um Patient appears no distress, doing well, no dermal irritation from from mask. Um, you know the subjective probably should have included patient states using device. You know assessment, obstructive uh, sleep apnea on CPAP doing well. Plan continue present therapy follow up one year. Okay, so I'm like looking through this paper chart because it was back when we still wrote on you know cave walls with crayon. You know I'm right. looking through this paper chart. And, 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 Each note is the same, you know, I'm like, okay, so I don't know this person at all. So I'm thinking this is going to be a rapid visit, right? So I knock on the door, I walk in and I'm saying, how are you doing? And here's this woman who looks so disconnected from her activity there. She's not making eye contact. She's got this disheveled looking machine in her lap. And I'm like, well, how are you doing with this machine? And she's like, all right. And I said, well, you know, is it doing you any good? And then finally, she kind of looks me in the eye. She's like, I don't know. And she was, you know, a little bit defiant, but not 
mean, but interested. Now she's paying attention because like yeah. I asked her something important. And I said, well, it says here you snore. And she's like, I don't snore. And I was like, I was about to say, yes, you do. Because it says so in the chart, you know, because <laughs> that, that was what was listed on her sleep study report. But, but I, wisely, right. I think in the moment I said, I didn't say that. And I said, oh, well, um, tell me more. And she said, well, I used to, you know, I was 20 pounds heavier then. Mm, you know, she presented okay. with excessive daytime sleepiness, sleep disruption and, and snoring. And then she had her sleep study and it showed an AHI of six. So she got herself the label, right? Diagnosis of sleep. Right. So I'm going to okay. cut to the chase. Bottom line is um, this woman actually had narcolepsy. Okay. Different problem altogether that was wow. responsible for the complaints that she had. When I got down into the weeds with her, I, I found out that she was using this only because they told her to, because they told her that it gave her, it would give her a stroke if she didn't use it. And, um, uh, and it didn't do anything for her that was perceptibly good. So, you know, she didn't snore without it because she'd lost some weight. It didn't improve her sleep experience and it didn't improve her wake experience. Uh, and um, so when we sort of delved into those sleep wake complaints again, we realized that there was an alternate diagnosis that was present that hadn't been addressed because the thinking took a mental nap as soon as she got her label and it became a label-based sort of propagation. And I thought, oh my God, this is embarrassing. I, I mean, I was terribly embarrassed because she's like, well, why have yeah. I been using this all these years? And, the, and the, the answer was, they told me it would give me a stroke if I didn't. And I felt that that was kind of mean because, you know, when we retested her, her AHI was two. And so it really wasn't that mm. flavor of sleep apnea, you know, um, it, it, it didn't deserve that scare tactic to get her on therapy. And yet there we were five years later. Wow. Okay. So the five finger approach was something that I worked on for about two years after that event. And I, and I published it as a special article in the journal of clinical sleep medicine. And it's, it was designed as a, as a memory tool and a teaching tool, a collaborative teaching tool so that we can involve okay. our patients and keep ourselves honest. And I, I broke okay. it down into five different domains to think about. If, you, if someone comes to you with a set of sleep weight complaints, like we established earlier in the conversation, we know what their narrative is. Now we have to sort of sound off. Well, could there be many things going on? You know, could there be several contributors? And, and yeah. you know, the original title of the paper was Beyond Occam's Razor, you know, because we're taught to find the one thing. It's sort of mm. conditioned into us that find the one thing that unifies it all. And I think that's a contributor, that myth that there's going to be the one ring. Yeah. And it's just not yeah. true. Sleep is complex. Yeah. And usually people have several things going on. And, uh, and so the five domains are circadian misalignment is the first one. And similar to the five reasons to treat, I put the most challenging one first because it's also fundamental okay. to the sleep-wake experience. Understanding circadian misalignment is kind of easy, okay? The idea is that there is a typically about an eight-hour time frame in our circadian cycle that's permissive okay. for sleep to occur. The two hours, roughly two hours before that time frame, we'll call that the circadian sleep phase. And for me, I'm a okay. pretty regular guy. My circadian sleep phase is roughly 10 to 6, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., okay? So for me, from roughly 8 to 10, there is a timing of my circadian rhythm that actually amps up my internal alertness, 
Okay, that's designed to help get you through to your finish line while all of this fume-like sleep pressure is building up in your brain. You know, the, the okay. desire to go to sleep can be kind of measurable by how much stuff builds up in the brain that is sleep-inducing. We call them sleep-regulating substances. listening to Airway First with today's guest, Dr. David McCarty. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to fix before six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. The CAF website offers tons of great resources for parents and medical professionals. In our Parents Portal and Clinicians Corner, you can find educational and informational content, including videos, blogs, our recommended reading list, comprehensive medical research, podcasts, events, parent support, and educational opportunities. Parents are also encouraged to join the Airway Huddle, our Facebook support group, which was created for parents of children with airway and sleep-related issues. You can access the Airway Huddle support group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Airway Huddle. Are you a medical professional or a parent that is interested in being a guest on an upcoming show? then shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now let's jump back into my interview with today's guest, Dr. Dave McCarty. Right now, what I'm getting into is a topic called the two-process model of sleep-wake regulation. There's the fumes that build up in the brain because you're awake and doing stuff. That's called process oh. S. And then there's the signal towards alertness that's on a timer, that's on a 24-hour okay. cycle. Okay, that's called process gotcha. C. Process S and process C, the two-process model. Okay. And Got it. the issue is that process C, the circadian rhythm of your alertness, can be damaged by environmental stimuli. It can be delayed most typically. So bright like lights. Like Yeah, lights and activity and socializing and all the things we do after dark, you know, fourth sure. meal, okay? All the stuff we do after dark pushes our circadian sleep phase later. And what that ends up doing is that burst of alertness activity, which the circadian rhythm researchers call the forbidden zone. Isn't that cool? The forbidden zone is. Is, a time, is a time frame in your circadian cycle where sleep doesn't really tend to happen because it's when your okay. brain is kind of on full steam helping you stay awake. Okay. But when that forbidden okay. zone gets also delayed on the clock because you're shining lights in your eyes and you're suppressing your melatonin, oh, yeah. what happens is people end up getting into bed and they're like, I can't fall asleep. Okay. The forbidden zone is to sleep what a big giant unruly frat boy is to the keg of beer sitting on top of it. Okay. And so it's, it, it's hard to fall asleep on top of your forbidden zone. Okay. So yeah. all of this is to say that teaching this, these concepts to people is, is full of jargon 
And so it's kind of scary. And many providers don't understand it well enough to discuss it with their patients. And so they don't do it and they don't consider it. And therefore it's not problem solved. So the good news is for circadian misalignment, which is the thumb of the five finger approach, the the book gets into it and the podcast does too. It talks you, you through it with imagery, you know? So we talk about the fumes in the attic for the process C and we talk about, or for process S, I mean, the homeostatic sleep pressure concept. And then the whole process C element, which is kind of scary because it has this circular time. I, I created something called the circadian rhythmo wheel. And it's something that it's fun to look at because, again, it's like a Cracker Jack decoder ring, but you can turn it around yeah. and you can actually see where these events are and you can see how things can delay. So the dynamic aspect of the wheel allows providers to show, you know, where's the forbidden zone happening now and where's your sleep phase and what can we do about this? Well, it has to do with exposure to light. And, you know, you can also use melatonin strategically to try and manipulate where your circadian sleep phase is. But again, these concepts are complex, right? And and right. Um, getting them through in a way that's not terrifying is, is job one. And, you know, there's a whole section in the book that talks about how to deal with um, delayed circadian sleep phase. So um, just for, yeah. for transparency, the, the hand is on the other side of the island and I am not there yet. So. Yes, I will have more yes. questions when I get yeah, there. You'll get there. I know you'll where get it there. Is. That, but that'll take yet. you through the 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 uh, the yeah. thumb, uh, which is the, the the thumb of the five finger approach, is is the the hardest one to talk about because it contains all that jargon, and that's where the circadian rhythm wheel and the discussion of the okay. two process model can be very helpful because it's really okay. a discussion of those things that allows people to get their hands around what we commonly call cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, changing how you behave and how you think about it. It is the natural outcropping of understanding that complexity. Okay. okay. Normally speaking, CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, is given as a set of instructions. You know, restrict the amount of time you're in bed. If you're not sleeping, uh, get out of bed. And, and so there are, these yeah. very, there are these hard instructions that feel hard and they feel like eat your vegetables. And people have a hard time with that. And in my mm-hmm. experience, empowering them with the knowledge for why it all fits together puts them in a different decision-making place. And then they choose the behavioral and cognitive things that they're supposed to do because I've told them to. Gotcha. You know? So gotcha. anyway, that's the thumb. The, the second uh, finger is a pharmacologic influences. I put this second basically as a, as a trigger for my fellows to do due diligence and look at the med list. Um, many of, okay. you know, this came naturally to me. I'm a primary care physician in, tra- in by training. So I started my, my training, career yeah. as, as a primary care internist. And my favorite thing to do when a person would come to me as a new patient is to look at their med list and let's talk about what's not needed. You know, this, I don't uh, think you need this. Let's, let's simplify this. Let's get you on something that's less expensive. That'll do the same job that has fewer side effects, you know, really trimming that list to be the sleekest and most effective thing was kind of a point of progress. So alternatively, when your background is like, say, neurology or psychiatry, you might not feel comfortable even sort of glancing at the cardiac meds because it's somebody else's Mm. specialty. I'm not supposed to talk about that. Right, right, right. But there's a culture that you don't even go there. But the problem is that many, many substances that we can take, either illicitly or recreationally or socially or by prescription, can have adverse effects on sleep and or wake. And it's not something that a lot of people know about. I'll give you an example. 
beta blocker. Okay. You familiar with the drug class beta blockers? Dying. Yeah. yeah. They they block the beta receptors for adrenaline and they help control heart rate and blood pressure. People use them for lots mm-hmm. of reasons, you know. Um, often it's for blood pressure, but in psychiatry, they're used to manage the side effects of antipsychotic medications. Uh, they can be used to manage anxiety, you know. So there's lots of reasons why somebody might end up on a beta blocker. Sometimes they're prescribed for migraine prophylaxis, you know. But okay. what a lot of people don't know, beta blockers can cause insomnia. Beta blockers can cause frightful nightmares and actually can can bleed over into hallucinations that intrude on, upon wakefulness in some predisposed patients. Okay. And, you know, it's it's not sort of on your cardiologist's mind that these sleep-wake complaints can occur. So the dots might not be connected. And it's like, I'm having these sure. terrible nightmares. And then all of a sudden you've got nightmare disorder and somebody's trying to give you a different medication to treat the nightmares. You know, so I call this swallowing yeah. the spider, swallowing the spider to swallow the fly, you know, so a critical appraisal of the med list with respect to that person's sleep wake complaints. And, you know, could this be related to something we're giving you or something you're taking? That's what the the, the index finger is about. Third and it, it would this also be if you're if you're talking to your provider, just a quick question that maybe your provider doesn't have the background that you had. And this, you know, and, and your your child or or yourself has the, this list of things. Is this an okay time to say, "Hey, can can we call and consult, or can you reach out to whoever and consult and see? Can we change this? Is this the right list? Is this?" I, arguably, that's where sleep medicine is supposed to pull their weight. Um, and, okay, you know, so this language that I'm I'm sort of putting forward is the ideal. And, you know, I, I know that the reality is that there are many um, uh, sleep clinics that are sort of Western medical stamped of approval. And the way they practically run things is, is sort of a, a, a pathway to get started on, on a, a CPAP or a standard airway strategy. And, and these okay. other issues may or may not be completely addressed. Um, and, and it's variable. It's totally variable by provider. In many cases, sure. uh, providers feel hamstrung because, you know, CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, isn't easy. Right. You know, people yeah. train to get certified in this and many providers aren't comfortable with the concept. And so they they will say, well, we can refer you out. But then that leads to a pathway that's usually not covered by insurance because it's usually a, a mm. clinical psychologist that provides these services. And that is often out of the, the scope of a healthcare plan. So there are often sure. barriers to getting this type of care. So, you know, once again, this is part of the reason of the empowerment project is give, give people the language and the structure to understand where this fits together so that they might self-advocate for these things. Gotcha. Um, okay, perfect. Yeah. All right. Number three. For well, for, for for anybody who's interested, there is a um, uh, uh, an excerpt from the book that was included as part of the podcast series that in, in episode five, the mountain, which is our season finale. I call it five finger approach mountain on the island because it's the high vantage point to orienteer from. But five finger approach mountain is is addressed in that episode, and there is a link to a handout about substances that commonly affect sleep and wake. And that's, oh, okay. I'll make sure that we include that. Yeah. 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 So that's available. That's available through that. Um, the show notes of episode five, the mountain, um, perfect. The third finger is the middle finger. Um, that points us to, uh, the medical, uh, problems domain. So keep in mind sleep, wake complaints when we're dealing with these sleep, wake complaints, 
you know, feeling like your sleep is disrupted, feeling like you're tired during the daytime. These are inherently uh-huh. nonspecific. And there may be other things that are disruptive to sleep that would fall under the medical domain. A common one is like um, uh, 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 chronic pain issues. Uh, there's so much uh-huh. chronic pain out there. Pain can be disruptive to sleep. And so whether... Okay pain is a major disruptor to sleep should be part of the calculus about how that pain is managed. You know, perhaps the strategy of, of strategic dosing at bedtime, just to allow some relief from that pain so that the person can get some rest. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a big part of our narrative towards chronic pain. That's, that's scrutinizing the overuse of opiates for good reason. You know, these are a dangerous Mm -hmm. drug class, but you know, we can't overshoot and stop caring about pain, especially when it comes to uh, to sleep. You know, if we can restore sleep functionally with a, a small dose of something that's not escalating, that the patient can maintain dosing of, that may be the better part of that risk benefit narrative. You know, for that individual. Okay. So anyway, the, the middle finger is a free for all discussion about how are our medical problems being managed and could. Um, we get better control over these medical problems to perhaps have a better effect on sleep-wake experience. Okay. So that's what that okay. is cause for. The, the ring finger is to call attention to the psychosocial and psychiatric components of the sleep-wake experience. Um, I'll okay. give you a, a startling example. A woman who comes in claiming to be anxious and can't sleep at night and feels tired in the daytime. What happens when you find out that um, where she lives There are gunshots outside and people banging on the door and she has an abusive boyfriend that occasionally visits her at night. So now we have a completely different language to explore for what's happening with this individual with these sleep-wake complaints. Um, Oftentimes, these mental health issues are scary to talk about. And so creating a safe space to explore that with our patients, that's what the ring finger is about. Could could we um, get this? this patient a better experience with referral to an appropriate mental health professional, or is there something unsafe at home we need to be thinking about? Um, it, it, it allows us to, um, to again, move beyond the, the hard stop of a sleep disordered breathing diagnosis and then moving, moving along like we did with the patient who inspired this approach. Someone, and there's, okay. there's actually an, a, a blog episode or blog, um, uh, entry for for um, this backstory uh that talks about this on my website and perhaps if listeners want to we can put a, a link to that yep, essay as absolutely well. absolutely um, fifth finger i did this on purpose again it, this was a teaching tool for my fellows to to make sure they they made a methodical survey of this patient before landing on something easy like sleep apnea like we did for the patient um, who inspired the story, right? So the fifth okay. finger is going to be what I call primary sleep diagnoses. These are fluid okay. categories. There are ways to organize yeah. this in your mind, but this would be something that, you know, you imagine would be labeled at a sleep clinic, you know, sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, chronic uh, insomnia, you know, um, got it. uh, idiopathic hypersomnia, narcolepsy. So these are the labels that you're going to get when you go to a sleep clinic. And I put it last as a reminder to my fellows that yes, it's important to talk about the sleep apnea, but when, when somebody comes in with a nonspecific set of sleep complaints, don't go there first. Okay. Right. But go there, you know, because let's say somebody's on, on a CPAP machine and they say, you know, I'm using it, but I'm not feeling well and I'm not sleeping well. 
let's go to the five finger approach mountain. Let's see if we can figure this out. And it, and it allows us to go back and critically appraise is CPAP resolving the sleep apnea? You know, are we doing a good enough job for that known diagnosis? Let's look at the data. You know, maybe your numbers are bad. It just so happens that people can do well for years on a CPAP machine. And then like that, they flip into atrial fibrillation. It changes their circulation dynamics. And now all of a sudden we're having central apnea events on treatment. Their numbers on their device out of nowhere go way up. And uh, to a provider that is unaware of the complexity of the moving parts, they may say, oh my gosh, well, we need to increase your pressure, you know, to and do something to yeah, chase after the yeah. thing that they that they sort of are holding on to that they still understand that that simple model. Okay. This is why simplicity is but the not the core has changed. The core has changed. Go back there. Yeah. So we got to go back and revisit. So if, if we're saying, you know, the fifth finger, well, you've got sleep weight complaints. Could the sleep apnea again be part of the problem? Let's critically appraise that. Let's go back and look at your numbers. Let's talk about the comfort of your mask. You know, could we do a better job? Is this the best option for you? Okay. So that's the stopping point for that. And when I do this, I'm not doing it in secret in my mind you know the point of the five finger approach is to teach it to our patients as we go and that, that way yeah. when they understand what we're working on and they see how we break it apart i used to draw a hand on the paper on the exam table and the patient would crowd up next to me and we'd sort of sit there and look at it together <laughs> and i'd write on it as we go and you know if i felt that circadian misalignment wasn't part of the problem i'd just cross out the thumb on my hand i'd say okay, we're, i don't think that's going on let's talk about your med list now and let's go through this. And, you know, bit by bit, the patients engaged, they may yeah. start to think about their sleep in a different way. And usually they go home with a few things that they can think about. And often they come back and they say, you know, that bit about circadian misalignment, I started watching my phone use and I put it on the warm tones and I did my proactive wind down time before bed with the low lights and the chamomile tea and the soft music. And man, I fell asleep easier. That stuff really works. Wow. You know? So it, it really can make a difference. And the difference is agency and personal empowerment. You know, when I sign the books, I often write empowerment saves. I mean, big explanation point. I'm not, I'm not being silly. Empowerment saves people from falling out and from being left behind because they're a part of the solution and they're actively engaged. Um, the disempowerment of the label-based system is again it's hard to talk about but i think that's a major yeah. problem that, that we all need to get our hands around and i think it's not just for very existential of me but i don't think it's just patients back to something you said earlier and i do think i'm labeling this podcast as empowerment saves because i think it saves the provider because what you're doing is giving them license to, yes. to, to follow through on the oath you took. The oath was to listen yes. and to heal. It well, gives if them you're the just language 15 to do minutes, that. Yeah, if you're 15 minutes in and out, you, you're not empowered. You're not doing what you spent all this time in school learning yeah. to do and care but about doing. That 15 minutes can go so much more smoothly if the provider and the patient yes. share the language. Patient comes in and says, yes. okay, like I'm ready for my coffee hut discussion. You know, I, yes. I think I know what I want to talk about. And then you don't yeah. have to, you don't have to sort of have this hour long bay of narrative discussion anymore. You know, now we've right. got 
we've got a common playing field and we can get into this mm-hmm. together. And the provider who, you know, no matter what silo they're in, if the patient's not doing well, they're going to be encouraged to think about the mechanics of this and break it apart yeah. into something more beautifully complex than their simple little one solution, you know? And, and that's yeah. the turning point. When the patient gets that complexity, they become your medical assistant who works free of charge 24-7. And they will help you do your job to find the way towards healing because they're motivated to do it. They just needed the structure, yeah. you know, to right. understand. Right. The tools, the tools. So at the end of every segment, um, I always hand the floor back over to our guests. Um, I see this all the time. Y'all are the experts. This is this is your world. And there's been so much that we've covered and I I encourage parents, please check out the show notes and teaser coming soon to the parents portal. Check it out because we're working on some teaching stuff together. So what would you like, what message do you want to leave with our parent audience and our clinician audience? The message is complexity is hard and talking about it is hard. And the the discomforts that we feel with the system are no individual's fault that arriving at a new solution to this complex problem means arriving at a new language. And and so the tools to unpack unpack complexity that I want people to leave here with and understand are the five reasons to treat and the five uh, finger approach. Um, the five reasons to treat are, are discussed in, a, in, of course, our podcast and our book. Mm-hmm. And the five finger approach is actually a published paper. So if you Google five finger approach sleep, it'll give you a free PDF of the publication that I that oh, I wanted to put it in here too. In 2010, and for providers, that's a good introduction to it. It's a little jargony for for patients, but it gives you an idea where this approach comes from. And if you want it for patients and and sort of non sciencey people, just listen to the first season of our podcast all the way through episode five, and it'll give you exactly what you need to have a working knowledge of what to talk about. Yeah, I love it. And and again, I cannot encourage parents enough. I will put a link to it in the show notes. It's already on our reading list. Um, Get the book, listen to the podcast, uh, and empower yourself for your child's health span. Yes, Thank you so much for being on today. I, I cannot thank you enough. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Rebecca. And um, anytime you want me back, just let me know. I will. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Dave McCarty, for sharing his medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review or a comment telling us about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, X, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Parents can also join us via our Facebook parent support group, the Airway Huddle, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Airway Huddle. You can also find tons of great content for parents and medical professionals alike via the Parents Portal and Clinician's Corner on our website. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.